from the beautiful and palatious Ultimate Sports Talk Radio Studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. After a week off, I'm Dave Mitchell, and we're back to talk about what's going on in the world of sports for this week ending July 11, 2013. Hope everyone out there had a very happy and momentous 4th of July. We took the weekend off. Went up to my nephew's wedding, and that went off without a hitch, even though it was supposed to be an outdoor wedding, and it turned out to rain, so we had to move it inside on the spur of the moment. But everything turned out fine. They got married. They're happy. And we're back here to talk to you about sports. And we're going to have a Cleveland theme tonight, as we're going to be speaking to a guest out of Dallas, Texas, believe it or not. And that is Mike Dice from Fansided.com. And Mike has done a couple of articles over the past week or so, mainly about Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, and also about Brad Stevens, who has become the new head coach of the Boston Celtics. So we're going to be talking with Mike in a couple of interviews here this evening about those two subjects. But without further ado, let's get into what's happening. Of course, you can contact us via the social media here at UST.com. You can talk to us. On Twitter at OHBBCoHost, that's OHBBCoHost, or you can email us at AskUs or DMitch at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Of course, we're with you every Thursday night at 7 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. And tonight, it's going to be a very interesting evening, and let's start out by looking at the world of professional football. Because what's going on is something that the Cleveland media has grabbed a hold of and they don't seem to want to let it go. It's the enduring saga of Jimmy Haslam, the new owner of the Cleveland Browns. He's also the CEO of Pilot Flying J Truck Stops. They sell all the diesel fuel, not all, but most of the diesel fuel for the truckers who travel across this great country of ours. You've probably seen those Pilot truck stop signs up as you travel down 71, 75, Route 40 out of Tennessee and places like that across the country. And you've probably also seen the Flying J truck stop signs. Well, they merged about 10 years ago. Well, the company is in bad straits right now because back in April, they were raided by the FBI and IRS as those two government organizations alleged that the business pilot flying J had been skimming money off the top of a rebet checks to their customers now what they're doing is calling it skimming and basically what they're saying happened was when a trucker buys gas they give that trucker and the company that he works for an incentive to buy gas at pilot flying J so let's put it into terms like it would be your automobile the gas you would get would be 350 a gallon. That's what you would pay. But because you would go to that station, Pilot Flying J, they would give you a rebate of, let's say, 50 cents, which would knock the actual gas price down to $3. Now, you'd still say pay 350 at the pump, but they would rebate you the 50 cents. Now, that is what Flying J was doing with their customers. However... The FBI and IRS are alleging that Pilot Flying J was not giving that entire 50-cent rebate back to those companies, that they were taking anywhere from a nickel to 10 cents off the top. Now, those aren't specific numbers. Those are just generic numbers that I'm using for this explanation. So that is what the FBI and the IRS are alleging. Now, they have made plea bargain agreements with two or three employees with Pilot Flying J in exchange for their testimony. Now, what the Cleveland media has grabbed a hold of during this entire time is that they are trying to pinpoint whether or not Jimmy Haslam had any idea as to what was going on. Of course, the buck stops at the top, as everybody likes to say, but Jimmy Haslam is coming back and saying that he had absolutely no idea that they were not giving the full rebate refund back to their customers. Matter of fact, Jimmy Haslam, to his credit, has been out front in this entire incident. He has made overtures to the people that have allegedly been skimmed, 
and he has talked to them and told them that he will make amends and make sure that they do get the full rebate. That is what Jimmy Haslam has done. Now, nobody has come out and said or testified or there is even any evidence thereof showing that Haslam has known what is going on in this rebate scandal. Of course, it's all going to come out in the court. But the NFL is getting involved simply because it's one of their owners, because Haslam bought the Browns last year. As a matter of fact, it was the NFL and Roger Goodell that came to the Browns and said, we have an owner ready to buy your team. And that is what made Randy Lerner, the previous owner, very interested in selling. And Haslam paid quite a fortune for the Browns. He put $700 million up front for the team with another $300 million due in about three years. So he paid $1 billion for the club. And Randy Lerner went back to London and took over his soccer team and is very happy. But because the NFL brought Haslam to the forefront for the Browns and vouched for him, now the NFL could be in trouble simply because they are the ones that brought him to the table. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting as early as late June is saying that the NFL is standing by Jimmy Haslam, but the Browns fans have posted panicky comments on sports blogs, and of course all the radio stations in Cleveland are jumping off the 480 bridge simply because of this. They're worried that Haslam's legal troubles might force him to sell the team, something Haslam says he has no intention of doing. Jimmy Haslam hadn't planned to spend this year like this. I mean, he purchased the team last August from Randy Lerner. He actually took control of the team at the end of October. He has been planning to spend a lot more time with the Cleveland Browns, but actually what happened was he brought in former Tennessee alum John Compton to replace him as the CEO of Pilot Flying J in January. And when this entire fiasco hit, Haslam all of a sudden had to leave Cleveland, go back to Tennessee, and take over the company once again. Nobody knew at the time why he just left Cleveland abruptly to go back and take over control of his business. Now everybody understands what has happened. But that has caused some to believe that he may have to sell the Browns as he deals with the investigation into his business practices. Those are reports that have been denied by the owner himself. But nonetheless, they are still out there, and that is why we go to our first guest tonight to talk about the article that he wrote on this situation. And we want to welcome into our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones here this evening on the UST show, Mike Dice from Fansided.com. He's the assistant editor, and he had an outstanding article a few days ago on Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam and what is happening up in Cleveland as far as Flying J and Pilot being sued by several people over a rebate scandal. Mike, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, it was a great article, as I said. Tell me a little bit about what the impressions are outside of Cleveland as far as what's happening with Jimmy Haslam as owner of the Browns in this scandal. Well, I mean, he certainly finds himself in a uh, troubling situation where his hand could be forced to sell the team. There's a report coming out that that uh, Fine Jay's company is $4 billion in debt, and obviously the Cleveland Browns would be a huge financial asset, and by selling the Browns it would bring some financial relief to the company. Now a lot of owners separate the two. They keep their corporate interests and their personal interests separate, but he could be forced to sell the Browns outside of Cleveland or Ohio, as a Dallas fan, you know, I live in Dallas, Texas, and we deal with Jerry Jones on a regular basis. It's it's something that's of concern and interest, but I don't think anybody really expects Haslam to have to sell the Browns in the future. You know, the one thing that's always intrigued me, Mark, uh, Mike, I'm sorry, about this situation is how the NFL didn't know about this. It happened so quickly that he bought the team, and then this scandal showed up. How did the NFL not know what was going on? You know, that's a, that's a good question because 
they do so much due diligence with their franchises. I mean, obviously, it's not the strictest when it comes in the four major sports when it comes to buying a team. You know, the M- MLB, I think, has pretty strict uh, requirements and a voting process to allow people to buy teams. But I don't know how it was overlooked. But as we've seen over the course of this offseason, there's a lot of missteps on the NFL from the league office in monitoring things. You know, you can look at it and compare it to the Broncos situation with the two, DGU, two DUIs. We find out that this, the, uh, one of the executives was arrested in June for a DUI, but that didn't manage to get noticed by anybody as well. So, obviously, the league is not paying as close attention to things as they should. You know, you also find out about all these other Aaron Hernandez suspects come out after the fact. You know, he was being investigated for a 2012 incident. How does all this stuff fly under the radar? I don't know if it's the NFL being so busy with their other interests, promoting overseas or, you know, promoting within the country, but they've definitely taken a step back and haven't been paying close attention to what's going on within their league recently. So, Well, we've got 18 lawsuits, civil suits, like you stated in your article on fansided.com a couple of days ago. And we're talking about at least a million dollars in each suit. So we're talking anywhere from 18 to 40 million dollars in lawsuits that he could be out. Really when you're four billion dollars in debt, Mike, is it, is that just a drop in the bucket or is that something that everybody should be concerned about? Well see, here, here's what makes the situation tricky is that the company itself is four billion in debt. So, as you've seen like with on Wall Street, and those kind of situations, someone's personal wealth isn't always necessarily tied into their companies. Obviously, to a certain degree, it is with stock options and stuff like that, but Haslam himself isn't in $4 billion debt. So he's going to probably be still, worst-case scenario, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he could definitely take a $40 million blow if he had to. So... His defiance or reluctance to sell the organization shouldn't really be too worried. It's if more of these lawsuits start coming out or some kind of class action suit comes into play that I think he'll really have to start worrying because, I mean, 18 to 14, 18 to 40 million dollars is, I mean, realistically, like you said, just a drop in the bucket. It's not, it's not going to force his hand to sell the team. So it all depends on if that's if that's all we're going to see come out of this, or if more people come out of the woodworks. Mike, is the NFL more concerned with the accusations that the FBI is making as far as the fraud, or are they more concerned with the civil lawsuits and how that could affect the franchise? I think you'd have to probably be more concerned with the fraud. The, the civil suits against the corporation doesn't really have much to do with the NFL itself. I mean, obviously it doesn't look good on their own, on an owner, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with that. But fraud from somebody who's running a business within a business is a bigger issue for the NFL going forward. Also, if there's any more legal ramifications aside from just fines that come into play, but we've seen reports that said the NFL has been working with the Haslam family and the Browns organization to make sure that if anything serious does happen, that the Haslam family will be able to maintain their ownership of the organization. Well, let me put you on the spot, Mike. What's your gut feeling? Do you think he's going to have to sell the team? Do you think the league will force him into selling? I I don't think – my gut feeling is no. I don't think that they'll force him to sell. There's only so many people who are willing to own an organization or can afford to own an NFL organization, so I don't think that they're going to force him to without anything – really uh, in the works of somebody lining up to, to be interested in buying it. So I think they're going to hold on to it. If the fraud investigation goes further and maybe some more criminal cases come about from that, then they might revisit it. But as long as it's just civil suits, I think the Haslam family's fine. Well, do you I mean, they also sold, they sold their minor yeah. league, they sold a minor league baseball team in uh, Tennessee that they own. That was where for, they bought the team for like $7.5 million. The, the guy who bought the team from them said that they gave him a fair price. So if they made money on that deal somewhere, I don't know, $10, 15000000 million he bought it for, 
I mean, that money right there would be a huge chunk of the money that they'd have to pay in these civil suits if they lose. Well, I guess another question would be, and this would be the final question on this, Mike, if the league finds out that Haslam knew nothing, which is what he has been saying all along, that he had no idea that this fraud was going on, if it is found that he did not have any idea about what was happening, could the league still fine him, suspend him? They probably won't make him sell, but could they do one of the other two, fine him or suspend him? I, I don't think. If, if it comes out and it's proven that what he's maintained all along, that he didn't know anything, they're not. I don't think they fine him or suspend him. If it comes out the other way and they do find out that he did have some kind of uh, hand in a role in it, and he knew what was going on, then maybe he could find a suspension. But they they wouldn't find him or suspend him for not uh for not knowing anything. They have you know with the Aaron Hernandez thing, they have bigger fish on their on their table, especially what's going on in Denver. Mike Dice, our guest tonight from FanSided.com. Of course, he had the article on Jimmy Haslam. We're going to be bringing Mike back into our show in the second half hour to talk about the Brad Stevens hire from the Boston Celtics. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for joining us tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com. And another thing I want to point out about this Jimmy Haslam situation is this. A lot make a big deal about the fact that the civil suits are going on. These civil suits are naming Haslam. But as a businessman, you need to understand. That's why... When you go into business, you form a corporation or an LLC. That's to protect your personal holdings. Now, in this case, the attorneys are saying, hey, let's just sue everybody involved. Out of these 18 civil suits, they are throwing as much up against the wall as they can and hoping some of it sticks, just to you coin a term. Well, that includes naming Jimmy Haslam personally in these lawsuits. Once they go through the court process, and this does take quite a while, it will take upwards of a year, maybe even two, for these civil suits. And they may have to wait until they find out the findings of the federal investigation by the FBI and the IRS. But once they get that, and they get to the court rulings, the court will probably throw these lawsuits out against Jimmy Haslam, and they will only be allowed to sue Pilot Flying J because of the corporation and how it is laid out. You just cannot be sued personally for something that the corporation does, even though you may be the major stockholder in the corporation. It just doesn't work that way. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see what's going to happen with the NFL. Now, training camp is starting in just a couple of weeks for the Cleveland Browns. Haslam is expected to be there. He's not going to answer any questions from anybody involved in this with the media. So it's going to be interesting to see what the FBI and the IRS's accusations are deemed to be warranted. But it seems Browns fans worried about losing Haslam as the team's owner have nothing to be concerned about, at least for the moment. And let me add one more thing to this. When Art Modell moved the original Cleveland Browns to Baltimore, it was because he was in financial disarray. Basically, he was broke. He lost his shirt in Cleveland. The NFL did absolutely nothing. To think that Jimmy Haslam could either be forced to sell or have the team taken away from him after the way Art Modell basically had to move the team out of Cleveland to Baltimore. It's just not going to happen. And the NFL, if they didn't step in on Art Modell, they're not going to step in on Jimmy Haslam. Well, let's move away from professional football, and believe me, we're going to have a lot of time to talk about both college and professional football coming up in just a couple of weeks. But let's move into Major League Baseball, where the All-Star Game is going to be happening this coming Tuesday night. But before we ever get into that, a perennial all-star made his return today. Derek Jeter came back to the New York Yankees after his rehab stint in the minor leagues from that broken ankle suffered last year in the American League Championship Series against Detroit. Derek Jeter was one for four on the day in his return. He played DH. He also had an RBI and a run scored in the ball game. 
And he swings at the first pitch and grounds it softly to third. Barehanded by Tejada. Of course, it's a base hit. Could we have thought any differently? Derek, one of the most aggressive hitters in the game, obviously not waiting around. If he likes it on the first pitch, he's going to go ahead and swing. But the one thing you're going to watch is how he runs down the line. Tejada comes in, the bare hand can't come up with it, an infield hit. This is what everybody wants to see. How is he running on that ankle? I'll tell you what, it looks pretty good. That sound clip from this afternoon from Michael Kay and the New York Yankees radio network. Of course, it's nice to see the captain for the Yankees back in the lineup playing DH today. It's hard to tell when he's going to be back at shortstop, especially after he had to leave the game this afternoon in the eighth inning with quad tightness. Now, actually, nobody's alarmed by that because Jeter hasn't played in the game in probably about eight months. But they're going to take a look at it and see just how bad it will be, and then they will decide any further playing time for Jeter after that MRI. Well, of course, the final spot vote for Tuesday night's Major League Baseball All-Star game concluded earlier this afternoon. And the four-letter network, along with some other media personnel, were pushing for the Dodgers' Yasiel Puig to make the All-Star team. He was in the final vote with Freddie Freeman and three other National Leaguers. Of course, Major League Baseball's Harold Reynolds put in his two cents on why he thought Puig deserved an all-star nod. He's exciting player in the big leagues right now. I mean, he is electric. Let's just look at what he does. I call him Little League Puig. Sometimes he runs until he gets tagged out. But the other thing he does, he plays with that enthusiasm. Remember the guy in Little League that was the one that was like, hey, we're going to go get ice cream. Look at my name on the back of my jersey. That's what he reminds me of. He's just a kid out there doing his thing. He's just tearing it up. But, hey, back in New York, June 19th, he plays a doubleheader. He gets thrown out stretching one, and then he decides, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to continue running until you tag me out. He showed us everything. He can steal a bag. He bunted, got on base, and on top of that, unbelievable power. I'm going back to his first home run. And how about the throw, the first game he made in, in L.A.? I mean, this guy took baseball by the storm, and that's why after 30 games, we're talking about this guy being in the All-Star game. I'm sorry. He's got my vote. He's got to be there. He is so exciting to watch. He has to be in the All-Star game. Well, he didn't make it. <laughs> the vote was announced earlier this afternoon. Freddie Freeman of Atlanta and Steve D'Alembert, the relief pitcher from the Toronto Blue Jays, were the two players that won the vote and the last spots on the American and National League All-Star teams. Of course, there was a lot made earlier this week about the fact that the Atlanta Braves fans and Toronto Blue Jays fans were trying to coerce the vote, and the Toronto fans were voting for Freeman, and the Atlanta fans were voting for D'Alembert just to keep... Puig off of the All-Star team. I really don't think Puig deserved to be on the All-Star team. He's only been in the majors for a total of 44 days. Now, that's not enough to be placed on the All-Star team. Even Bryce Harper had to wait longer than that to make the All-Star team. I just think it would have been a travesty. But I also think the Major League Baseball has to decide what they're going to do with this All-Star game. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But who's going to be the starting pitchers for the All-Star game on Tuesday night? Major League Baseball's Dan Plezak makes his case for the National League and Bruce Bochy to start Matt Harvey of the New York Mets for the National League on Tuesday he's night. He's taken Major League Baseball by storm in 2013. Right now, he's the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. There isn't a pitcher right now that has the arsenal. Take a look at that belt, Harold. This is his utility belt. What does he have? A terrific changeup. Very polished for a young pitcher. Breaking ball, this hard slider right here. I don't know how you lay off that. You're right-handed or left-handed. Then he has the powerhouse fastball, 95 to 99 miles an hour. He has three quality pitches. Then the fourth, I call it a slurve. It's not a true slider. Four terrific pitches. 2.27 earn run average, 7-2. and two. Right now, today, the best pitcher in baseball. I'm sorry, Mr. Plezak. I, I understand what you're trying to do. 
you're trying to drum up some interest on Matt Harvey being the starting pitcher. He's probably going to be the starting pitcher for the National League. I don't really agree with that. I think Clayton Kershaw and Adam Wainwright are probably two more deserving prospects to start the game. But it is in New York at City Field. So, okay, go ahead and start Matt Harvey. But to say that he right now is the best pitcher in baseball, uh uh-uh. That's not the case. He's not even up to the status of a Max Scherzer of Detroit, who will probably start for the American League. Scherzer right now, 13-0. and 0. How can you say a 7-2 and 2 pitcher is the best pitcher in Major League Baseball up against a 13-0 and 0 pitcher? No way is Matt Harvey the best pitcher. Fox Sports, though, John Paul Morosi gives his advice to the two managers, Jimmy Leland of Detroit and Bruce Bochy of San Francisco, who will be the all-star managers, on who should be the starting pitchers for the all-star game Tuesday night. In the American League, it's Max Scherzer, and in the NL, hometown favorite, Matt Harvey. Now, Jim Leland, who also is Scherzer's manager in Detroit, is a little bit concerned about the workload. Scherzer is scheduled to pitch the final Saturday of the first half. Leland wants his starter to go two innings, but Scherzer, based on the fact that he pitches Saturday, probably can only give him one. You know what? I'm not so worried about that. He can have his next next pitcher go two innings. And for me, Scherzer deserves this start. Max Scherzer subscribes to Sabermetrics. He's also a great personal story. Went through the tragic loss of his brother last year early in the season and has rebounded tremendously from a personal standpoint and is now one of the game's elite pitchers. It would be a fitting part of his story if he's able to start the All-Star game. In the NL, Matt Harvey. We all talk about should Adam Wainwright start that game because he's been the most deserving guy, longest track record. All those things I agree with. Wainwright would be a fine choice. But if I'm an average American sports fan, I want to see Matt Harvey for the first time on a huge national scene. The Mets, as we know, probably a couple years away from getting into a postseason game or other sort of important contest like that. I want to see this kid in front of the whole nation, in front of the whole world, out there at his home ballpark at City Field. I think that might make a couple headlines in New York, which is what, after all, the All-Star Game should be about, showcasing the game's great talents and the great stories. It's why Yasiel Puig should be there, and it's why the pitching matchup should be Max Scherzer versus Matt Harvey. And that's probably what it will be, Max Scherzer against Matt Harvey. And that's fine. And the All-Star Game will be Tuesday night in New York at City Field, home of the New York Mets. Of course, there's a lot going on with this biogenesis investigation. And someone who's putting in his two cents worth now is John Rocker, the former relief pitcher for the Atlanta Braves and Cleveland Indians. He was a once-dominant closer, and then he fell into disfavor in baseball after comments he made about New York City. But back in the news, Rocker, whose rants in the past were sometimes racist and usually offensive, told CBS Sports Radio in Cleveland, 92.3 The Fan, on Tuesday, that people were getting their money's worth when the players were juiced, especially during the 1998 season. Well, Rocker said that baseball was more entertaining and a better game when the players were using the juice than when they're not. Honestly, and and this may go against what some people think from an ethical standpoint, I think it was a better game. Um... At the end of the day, when people are paying their 80 bucks, 120 bucks, whatever it may be, to buy their ticket and come watch that game, it's almost like the circus is in town. They're paid to be entertained. They want to see some clown throw a fastball 101 miles an hour and some other guy try to hit 500 feet. That's entertainment. You're paying to be entertained. Was there anything more entertaining in 1998 watching Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire chase 61 home runs? That, that was absolutely just I mean, just mesmerizing time and a great time for, for every baseball fan out there watching that. I mean, we, we all know after the fact, you know, while we were, you know, while we were able to watch that, but it, it was entertaining and the people were getting their money's worth. Well, that may have been the case, and Rocker does make a point. But Chris Davis, the slugger for the Baltimore Orioles, who has hit 320 this year with 33 homers so far going into tonight's action, was asked via Twitter, by a kid if he is indeed on performance-enhancing drugs. Davis answered very simply, no. Now, if you followed the media freakout during the PEDs and all over the past several seasons, you know what's coming next. Rick Riley of ESPN and Sports Illustrated wanted 
to ask Chris Davis to elaborate on his plain no to the kid in question. But when Davis does elaborate, explaining how he felt betrayed by Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, going into detail about baseball's anti-drug policy and explaining how his swing and equipment change has helped to make him get better contact, Riley basically laughs in his face, saying that Davis's response, quote, carries less power with me than a mosquito's burp. I've lived through the entire steroid era. I've heard every impassioned denial from every accused baseball superstar since the Reagan administration, and most of them wound up being liars, end of quote. The problem baseball has right now is the public trust. Major League Baseball is asking questions of these 20 or so ballplayers that are involved in the biogenesis situation. Ryan Braun and A-Rod are the biggest names. Well, Ryan Braun had his meeting on Tuesday. He refused to answer any questions. He won't answer anything. Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports talks about just what is going on and if we should make a big deal about players saying nothing. I don't know that we should be making a whole lot of players refusing to answer questions. They are not obligated to answer questions in such circumstances has the rights that every person would have Fifth Amendment rights. So I'm not surprised Ryan Braun didn't answer. I would not be surprised if A-Rod didn't answer. My understanding is that some players did answer and some players did not. If they have enough evidence to suspend these guys, they will suspend these guys. And nothing that they would have said one way or the other probably would have affected that, that they're not going to, as players, incriminate themselves. No one is asked to do that in a court of law. You can't expect baseball players to go in there and say, hey, you know what, I was juicing like crazy, go ahead, suspend me. It certainly sounds like they are preparing after the All-Star break, which is consistent with what I've heard, to make some moves. Now, once the suspensions are announced, and let's assume it is 20 players, as we've heard, then you're going to have a good number of those players, perhaps the vast majority, perhaps all of them, appeal. Now, once the appeals start, then it's a process, and it takes some time, and I would not be surprised if it went into the off-season with many of these cases. There's just too many of them to hear all at once. Positive test, everything is confidential, the appeal is heard after the suspension, and we are not supposed to find out about it until the very end. And if the appeal is upheld, we're not supposed to find out about it at all. These are not positive tests. These are what are known as just cause suspensions. It's a different track. And with a just cause suspension, if a player's name is out in public, as these players' names are out because of all the media reports, starting with the Miami New Times, then yes. Baseball can announce the suspensions, then the appeals can begin with the players remaining on the field. It's important to remember, we're not going to see Ryan Braun and all these other guys disappear if they are suspended on July 16th or 17th. This should be a very interesting two weeks in Major League Baseball. In baseball news, Cincinnati called up their number one draft choice from this year's amateur draft. 18-year-old Dylan Michael spent less than a month in the team's minor league system where he hit a combined 406 with 12 home runs and 27 RBI. It's expected that Michael will start in center field tonight in Cincinnati's game against New York. Last at bat, a novel by Mark Donahue, available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books and & Company. You can also order Mark Donahue's book on ultimatesportstalk.com. Welcome back to the second half hour of tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show here at the UltimateSportsTalk.com radio network. I'm Dave Mitchell. And could it be, finally, after LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers high and dry after the 2010 season, that the team could actually be relevant in the NBA again? Well, I'll tell you what, Chris Grant has done an outstanding job in this offseason, not only having the number one draft pick this year and using it to parlay into Anthony Bennett of UNLV, but also now he's picked out what may be, many think, the number two center in the NBA on the offseason free agent market in Andrew Bynum. Yep, that's right, Andrew Bynum, in case you missed it, signed with the Cleveland Cavaliers last night after going on a whirlwind tour to Cleveland, then Atlanta, then to Dallas. Mark Cuban put a full-court press on Bynum, but in the end, they couldn't match what the Cavaliers offered, which was a two-year contract 
worth upwards of $12 million a year or $24 million total. But the thing about this contract is, and because everybody was scared to death of Bynum's knees since he couldn't play at all last year, the Cavaliers only guaranteed $6 million of this contract. When you look at what they guaranteed, it was $6 million that Dallas could not guarantee because that amount of money, known by Chris Grant and known by the Dallas Mavericks but not widely reported, was the amount that would have pushed Dallas over the salary cap luxury tax. And instead of a $6 million contract, they would have had to pay 50% of that contract and it would have made it a $9 million contract. And the Mavericks decided that was just too much to pay for Andrew Bynum. Well, Chris Broussard of ESPN went on SportsCenter yesterday as soon as he understood that the contract was going to be signed by Bynum and said that this was just part of a long-range plan by the Cavaliers in order to get LeBron James to come back to Cleveland next year. Now, according to him, with Kyrie Irving and Andrew Bynum in the fold, and with Tristan Thompson playing power forward, you've got Anderson Varejao being the backup center. You've also got Anthony Bennett, the number one draft pick. You've got Deion Waiters from a year ago. This is the makings of a team that could entice LeBron James to come back into the Cleveland market and sign with the team next year because many feel James is going to opt out of his contract with the Miami Heat after next season. But right now, if you look at this Cavaliers team, not only do they have two number one draft picks in Kyrie Irving and Anthony Bennett, but they also have Jarrett Jack, who they just signed away from Golden State. He'll be a backup point guard. They can go with a three-guard lineup now with Irving, Jack, and Deion Waiters. They signed Earl Clark away from the Los Angeles Lakers. He can play small forward or big forward. Bennett, coming in from UNLV, can play small forward or big forward. They've got Anderson Varejao. Now they can play Bynum and Varejao in the center position. They can each play 20, 25 minutes a game, save the wear and tear on their bodies throughout the entire year. That's the equivalent, folks, of 41 games throughout an 81-82 game schedule. The front court, look at the size that they've got. Bennett. Thompson, Zeller, Bynum, Varejao, Karasev. And then, of course, you've got Mike Brown, who's going to be teaching the defense. Could it be that the Cavaliers are going to be relevant again? A lot of people feel after this signing of Andrew Bynum, if he does come and play like he can. And remember the last season he had that was very, very good. It was under Mike Brown in Los Angeles when he averaged 18 points and 12 rebounds a game. If he does that in Cleveland, he'll be a star, and the Cavaliers make the playoffs maybe even as high as a number four seed in the Eastern Conference. But now you go from Andrew Bynum, to whom many say is the number one center in the NBA. Frankly, I think he's the number one headache in the NBA. I would want absolutely nothing to do with Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard signed the four-year, $88 million deal with the Houston Rockets to go there. I applaud the Los Angeles Lakers for two reasons. Reason number one, they did not do a sign-and-trade with Houston, which means it cost Dwight Howard almost $33 million over the four years of his contract because the Lakers would not trade him. The difference between trading him to Houston and just letting him sign with Houston was the fact that Houston did not have to give up a draft pick to L.A. also. But then what it also meant was it cost Dwight Howard $33 million over that four-year deal. I applaud the Lakers for that. And secondly, I applaud the Lakers for just letting him go. Let him, just let him go. It just meant nothing to them. I, I give it all to the Lakers on this one. He signed with Houston, and he wants this team in Houston to revolve around him. But is it going to? Because if you recall last year, they brought in Jeff Harden from Oklahoma City to be the leader of this team, to take them to the promised land, to do what he did in Oklahoma City. 
can Jeff Harden and Dwight Howard coexist? Whose team is it going to be? Harden or Howard? Who's the third man on the totem pole for Houston? And Kevin McHale, he's got a full head of hair now, and it's dark brown. What is it going to be like after a year of having to put up with Dwight Howard complaining, whispering in his ear constantly, all season long, get me the ball, get me the ball. Dwight Howard, there's no doubt, is an outstanding defensive player when he wants to play. And that is slim and none most of the time. He is in it for the money. Now he's got the money. Now what does he do? He's a coach killer. Most are saying out there, Kevin McHale is going to have a headache because they're saying Howard won't work. He constantly complains, which is true. One of the reasons he said that he wanted to sign on with Houston was because of the fact that he could learn the post moves and learn offensive moves not only from one of the great fundamental post players of our time in Kevin McHale, but also learn from a center who's a Hall of Fame center and won two titles in Houston, and it came Olajuwon. The thing about learning from those two is, hey, it's great to work with them for a couple weeks, but these are post moves that have taken LeBron James three years to learn. And they are just now starting to kick in. His low post game is just now starting to roll into shape. Dwight Howard, same age as LeBron, same years in the league as LeBron, but is he going to work as hard as LeBron does? I doubt it. Plus, another thing that they say about Dwight Howard is he cannot be held accountable for anything. Once he gets involved with a coach that wants to hold him accountable to work, to come into to shoot-arounds on time instead of playing this Superman persona. That's when he gets upset at the coach. He's been responsible for three coaches being fired, Brian Hill, Jeff Van Gundy, and Mike Brown. Those are the coaches, I'm sorry, Stan Van Gundy, are three of the coaches that have been fired. Kobe wanted to teach him how to win, something that Shaq, taught Kobe how to do when Shaq came from Orlando to the Lakers. And together they paired for championships. And Shaq, the other day, said that this is not unusual for Dwight Howard. The Dwight Howard thing, it was expected. You know, we've all, we've all been in L.A., and not a lot of people can handle being under the bright lights. Everybody wants to do it, but when you get there, you know, there's certain pressures. And, you know, I think it was a... A safe move for him to go to a little town like Houston. Well, absolutely it was safe. And that's the one thing that Dwight Howard wants to do. Get as much money as he can and play in an environment that is safe. He would have had Mike D'Antoni fired from the Lakers if he could have. That's just, it's well known. CBS Sports, though, they talked about this decision that Dwight Howard made earlier this week. And they disagree on Howard's impact in Houston. I mean, they'll be better, and they'll be a contender in the West, but compete with anybody? With Jeremy Lin as your point guard? Are you kidding me? The guy can't shoot. They don't have any shooting around them except for Chandler Parsons. And what has Dwight Howard ever done? All he does is complain and ruin coaches and complain and get angry at teammates. He's a bad teammate. I think Dwight Howard gets a bad rap in the national media. And I think I blame Stan Van Gundy for that stunt he pulled out of press conference. What did he do? When he came out and he said that, you know, Dwight's not the same guy. He did a whole thing at the press conference. Suddenly, Dwight Howard was the bad guy. And now ever since, reporters, writers, everyone on Twitter, Dwight Howard's a bum. Guess what? Dwight Howard played injured last year for the Lakers when a lot of different players in the Lakers did not take the court, had a good season, and though they lost in the playoffs in the first round or were swept or whatever, Dwight Howard was not the reason why the Lakers were bad last year. You know year. what? I, I like where you're going here, Pete Traeger. Pete Prisco, Dwight Howard, is this come down to likability? Is the guy just not likable? Well, he was likable a couple years ago. Superman, dunk contest, every big smile. And then he's a coach killer. When you're a coach killer, you, it basically killed Stan Van Gundy's career. When you're a coach killer, teammates don't like you, you lose a lot of your likability. Do you really think... 
Dwight Howard's the guy you can build a team around, and Dwight Howard's going to lead you to an NBA championship? He doesn't have to be. You've got a guy in Harden who can do that, and now Howard is the other player. This is like... I don't want to make a com kind of comparison to Shaq and Kobe by any means, but because there, have, is no there is no comparison. But you have the guard, and now you have the center that can protect the rim. In today's NBA, is the center position even all that important? I don't know if any teams are winning based on their center. So he's the best center in the league. I think everyone would agree with that. He's the most talented when he's healthy. And now you've got Harden, who's one of the best playmakers. They're both under the age of 30. I like this team. I think they can compete. You guys remember I told you this. He's going to be a train wreck in Houston, and, wreck. and the Houston Rockets will not be his last NBA team. I guarantee you. Wow. And I agree with that. Dwight Howard is going to be a headache in Houston, and it's one that they really don't need. If they think they're going to compete for an NBA title, I don't agree with it. I think there's going to be more problems with Dwight Howard. I think he's going to be more of a headache for Kevin McHale. And if I was Kevin McHale, I would put as much money as I can in the bank because I don't think he's going to be employed very much longer. Well, surprise, he turned down UCLA and is going to the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics finally got their new coach. I guess you could say finally. It only happened after a few days after they lost Doc Rivers to the Los Angeles Clippers. And let's bring back in Mike Dice of Fansided.com, the assistant editor. He's got another article, as I said earlier, about Brad Stevens becoming the new head coach of the Celtics. I guess, Mike, the first question I would have to ask is, why Brad Stevens on the Celtics part? Why Brad Stevens on the Celtics? He's young. He has a new energy. And I think they could get him at a reasonable price. That's why they went that way. I think there's been so much movement around with uh, coaches in, in the past in the NBA that you don't want to bring in somebody who's had a head coach job somewhere else. Why you don't promote from within or find an assistant coach in the NBA, I don't know. But I don't think they wanted to follow the trend of bringing in like a Stan Van Gundy or a coach who's been around in the NFL for a while. They want some fresh blood and some new life, some new energy, some new um, ideas, maybe a little bit of innovation by bringing them in. So they went with Brad Stevens, a coach who's been who's young. I mean, he's only 36 years old. He's been very successful at a small NCAA school. He's led them to two national championship games. So I think it's an interesting choice. Personally, I've always been hesitant of bringing in college coaches into professional sports in any sport. But that's just my opinion. Well, I tend to agree with you because really the last two mega names that have come from the college ranks into the pros, John Calipari and Rick Pitino, didn't fare very well. And as a matter of fact, Patino was with the Celtics. So where does Danny Ainge think that Brad Stevens is going to succeed where those two failed? You know, that's it's hard to say what he sees in them that he doesn't see in them. You could make the argument that Rick Patino is a better coach than Brad Stevens is. I think it's kind of a gamble, and what you're getting is you're hoping – I mean, you can't be discredited that he took a small school like Butler and brought them – to the national championship game in the final four two years in a row. That in itself is a huge accomplishment. So obviously his coaching mind is right. What's really going to be important is who they surround him with. If they can surround him with a veteran cast of assistant coaches, and I think it's important that they bring in assistant coaches and not other or former head coaches to support him, I think he can be successful. But I think they're just looking for something fresh, something different, something to – rejuvenate the franchise as they're going through this rebuilding process. Our guest is Mike Dice of Fansided.com. He's the assistant editor. Mike Larry Brown, who was the only coach to win an NCAA and NBA title, says that Stevens is going to need time to win, but he needs to win quick. How's he going to do that? I mean, basically through the draft, I think there's going to be some growing pains they're going to have to get better through the draft of free agency. They didn't really want to play a role in free agency because they feel like their team that they have around them is capable of winning. Um, in Dallas, we've seen, you know, how being mediocre isn't really a help. Being in the playoff hunt can, keeps you out of the lottery pick while maybe keeping you at 500. So, I mean, I think if they 
have a rocky start one, maybe two years, and they get some lottery picks, they can really turn this around in years three and four. It's just going to come down for a matter of the Boston fans and the Boston organization being patient. They gave them a six-year deal because they understand it's going to be a process. So I think what's most important is patience and not expecting it too quickly. How Rondo works with the players they got from the Nets and their draft picks doesn't really remain the, the guy that the percentage that they got in the draft via trade has been kind of impressive during summer league. So there's there's light in the, at the end of the tunnel, and there's some positive and, and there's some optimism. But I think it'll be a rough first year, and then second year you'll start to see him hit their stride. You know, Mike, it was reported that Stevens was also offered the UCLA job before Steve Alford got it. I understand the Celtic allure, but I also understand the allure of UCLA. Why the Celtics and the NBA over a UCLA and staying in the college game that he's been a success at? You know, I always wonder why coaches go from college to professional. You know, you go from dealing with these kids who don't necessarily have these massive egos and it's a little bit more personal and a little bit more love. There seems to be a little bit more tenure in college, the college ranks, um, to go into the pros where it's so high demanding and so stressful. And you see so many coaches that make that leap come back to the college ranks. You know, you saw it with Nick Saban. You saw it with uh, other coaches that you named earlier. But I think it just has to do with personal goals and where he wants to be. For me, personally, if I was a college coach and I was offered a premier job in the college ranks, I would stay there. I think the love, the respect, the, the patience you get, the understanding is a little bit more tolerable. And I think it's just a more overall enjoyable experience. The demand that you have and the expectations to me uh, in the pro ranks are just so stressful sometimes. And you see the turnover with coaches can be every few years. I mean, in Dallas, Avery Johnson, who was the head coach for the Mavericks, takes him to the finals, wins 67 games, and then he's gone. I mean, he was only the head coach for three, four years maybe. I mean, the lifespan of a coach in the pro ranks isn't very long. So I basically have to come down to his his goals. His goals had to have made him turn down a job at one of the marquee schools to take a job in the pro ranks. And, and final question, Mike. I heard a great explanation about why college coaches have such a tough time jumping to the pros. I want to see if you agree with it. You, you're playing 35 37 games a year at the college ranks. You're paying three times that and the in the pros. In the NBA, it's more of a marathon. In college, it's a sprint where every loss could be your last one. And you get into the NBA, and you've got best four out of seven. So it's never a do-or-die situation until you get into day seven. And college coaches don't know how to relate to that situation. Do you see that explanation as having any merit? Oh, absolutely. I mean... It makes perfect sense. If you're going to be coaching two, three times the amount of games, the, the pressure, the, the grind, everything gets down to you. I mean, the, the dealing with professional players' egos and players who are making millions of dollars, I mean, that's already a hurdle in itself. And if you were to do that on a college schedule, that would still be a hurdle. But to do it over 82 games in the regular season, not even including the playoffs, it absolutely makes sense. It's a grind. It's more day in. It's more day out. You don't have that time to uh, pause and rest. You don't get that chance in the NBA because it's just so constant once the season starts. It's more stressful. It's more demanding physically. And you've seen coaches turn down jobs because they couldn't handle the, the physical stress of it. You know, Phil Jackson, when he had to consider whether it was going to affect his health before he took the Lakers job, before they gave him Mike Tony, so... It's absolutely more of a grind, and to be consistent over 82 games versus over 30 games is a lot harder. Well, another thing Larry Brown said, too, who is back in the college ranks coaching now, in case you didn't know, he's a new basketball coach at SMU. Another thing that he mentioned was the fact that professional players know within the first five or six minutes of their first game if a guy can coach or not. And that's what they're going to find out with Brad Stevens. I think he's a great coach. I think he's a great college coach. I think jumping to the pros, where, as Mike just said, you've got a bunch of prima donnas running around, 
I think he's going to have a problem. Do I think he's going to get the full six years? I doubt it. I doubt if he's there more than three years, and then he'll be ready to just back out of it and go back someplace in college basketball. Well, this Aaron Hernandez situation is getting out of hand. Uh, not only has the media taken a hold of this, like the O.J. Simpson trial back in the 90s, but they're also starting to lay blame in places that it really doesn't belong. For example, I want to specify one article here by Michael Rosenberg of SI.com, SportsIllustrated.com. He's talking about former Florida and current Ohio State coach Urban Meyer and how Urban now is fighting back over the fact that the media is trying to lay the blame of Aaron Hernandez at his feet. Now, according to Rosenberg, he understands why Meyer is fighting back and that anybody trying to tie Meyer to that murder would rattle any of us. But here's something that is being said. Aaron Hernandez looks like a sociopath, and that should rattle Meyer, too. This is a direct quote from Rosenberg's article on SI.com. It's been well documented, but a lot of Meyer's Florida players seem to get in major trouble and thrown into the back of a police car. So many Gators got arrested that the Orlando Sentinel started keeping a running count. The New York Times reported last week that from 2005 to 2010, Gators were arrested 31 times. More amazing, of the 121 players on the 2008 National Champions, 41 have been arrested either in college or afterwards. Rosenberg goes on to say, is this normal? We'll put it this way. If you had three kids and one got arrested, would you figure that was normal? Well, this kind of argument has drifted into the Cleveland media also, especially on the four-letter network that's on AM Radio 850. Now, I've got to say this. How in the world anyone could allege that Urban Meyer has anything to do with Aaron Hernandez is beyond me. First of all, we're talking about an alleged killer. And Aaron Hernandez is due his day in court. To lay blame at anyone's feet right now would be irresponsible. Are they going to start blaming Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick for this? Because... Urban Meyer had Aaron Hernandez for three years, and he roomed with Tim Tebow all three years. Bill Belichick has had Aaron Hernandez for four. So how does Bill Belichick get a pass in the media, but yet Urban Meyer is the one that is being criticized because of it? I'll tell you why. Very simply because Bill Belichick does not allow the media to bully him. If the media decides that they want to hold a press conference with Bill Belichick to discuss the Aaron Hernandez situation, I could tell you exactly what will happen. Bill Belichick, in those docile tones of his, will say, I can only talk about the players that are here. And if they continue to ask him questions about Aaron Hernandez, Bill Belichick will walk out and he will not return and he will definitely not answer any questions about Aaron Hernandez. That's what's going on out there now. The media does nothing to investigate stories. And when they do, they think they have to have somebody that they can lay the blame at the feet of. That's not Urban Meyer. It's not Bill Belichick. It's not Robert Kraft. And it's not Tim Tebow. The only person that should be held accountable for this crime is the murderer. Allegedly, Aaron Hernandez. And until that is decided in a court of law, there is nobody to blame. After all, are we going back and blaming the coaches like John Fox for Ray Carruth? Are we going back and blaming John McKay and John Robinson for O.J. Simpson? No. Why should we be blaming Urban Meyer for Aaron Hernandez? That's going to do it for this week's show, the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Our thanks to Mike Dice from Fansided.com. He's the assistant editor just outstanding tonight, telling us about the Jimmy Haslam situation in Cleveland and also the Brad Stevens hiring with the Boston Celtics. Don't forget to join us on Monday night, everyone, here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. As Mark Donahue and I will talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, that's at 9 o'clock, right back here at this website. And then next week, 
We'll be back with another Ultimate Sports Talk show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to Mike Dice for being our guest, but most of all, our thanks to you tonight for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock, enjoy your weekend, everyone. Good night.